So for the uh, past three weeks, we've surveyed Matthew chapters 1 to 22, uh, and then 23 last week, to highlight the general setting and how it anticipates and prepares the reader to understand and, and even just heartily agree with the prophetic pronouncement of the Olivet Discourse, which then ultimately anticipates the concluding commission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom at the end of Matthew. So after four weeks of reviewing the context of Matthew leading up to the Olivet Discourse, here we're going to finally today, we're going to dig into chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. Uh, But even so, today and next week, I'm going to be showing you how crucial our understanding of these first three verses uh, are to this chapter for our interpretation and application of the response that follows. The Olivet Discourse is his response, Jesus responding uh, to the disciples' question that is put forward in verse 3. And so that's why uh, I've titled this sermon, this uh, Setting the Course to the Olivet Discourse. So I'm sorry I went there. Setting the Course for the Olivet Discourse. Um, but it, it really summarizes what, we are, what our goal is today. So I'll invite you to turn in Matthew. Now we're not going to read all of Matthew 24 today. To set us up and prepare us for today's message, I want us to go back to verse... Uh, 29 of chapter 23, and then we're only going to read to verse 3 of Matthew 24. So if you can begin with me, uh, turn. I'll, I'll be reading from Matthew 23, verse 29. If you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> These are the words of Christ, the Word of God incarnate. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up them, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, You brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house is left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple 
and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is the word of Christ. You may be seated. So the central focus, I believe as we've seen, and I'm I'm sure we're all in agreement, of the Olivet Discourse is divine judgment. And I believe we are all in agreement on that point. Regardless of your eschatology, regardless of your approach, uh, we are all in agreement uh, that what is going on here is a pronouncement of God's divine judgment. Now, again, the disagreement or the, the differences come in the questions of, are these events the kind of things that we need to be on the lookout for and anticipating soon in, in Christ's second coming? Or have these events taken place in the execution of God's judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 AD? And if so, if that is the case, and it's already happened, what is the relevance for us today? Those are the, the, the kind of questions that we're going to be going through. And what I'm going to be unfolding from the text itself, as I've made clear is, uh, over the next couple of months, is that Jesus is prophesying God's judgment upon Israel in verses 1, well, really verse 4 to verse 34, well, and verse 1. So verse 1 to 34, he's prophesying God's judgment upon Israel, which will also serve as a shadow of the final judgment of the world to come when Christ returns, which is the focus from verse 36 on to the end of the discourse. And it, it is the fact, so, and this is really going to be the point today, I believe it is the fact that the first portion has already been fulfilled, as Christ said it would, that ought to quicken our attention today in the present to the prophetic warning of eternal judgment that he says is coming from verse 36 to the end of chapter 25. So we'll begin with verse 1. Again, this this section with the opening of of how important it is to set us up, verses 1 to 3, is going to be two parts. Um, So today we're going to get through verse 1 to 2. 1 and 2, with verse 3 in mind, and then next week we'll complete verse 3 together. In verse 1, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. Now, it is not mentioned in passing here, but what what is going on, if you just read through it, you don't even notice it. But what is happening is that Jesus... Uh, There is a dramatic portrayal of what Christ has already just declared that we read from Matthew 23 uh, was foretold would happen as well as we're going to look at actually was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament as well. This very event, this very thing that is going on. First, uh, we have the previous example in in, uh, 
chapter 23, verse 38. Jesus declares to the scribes and Pharisees in the temple. And he says, see your house. Remember, it used to be the father's house. Now he's saying your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I also want you to turn to Ezekiel. If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, it, again, you don't have to, but it'll, it'll help you if you see it for yourself so you're able to follow. In Ezekiel chapter 11, after the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, then you have Ezekiel. And I mentioned this last week, but I, I actually want to encourage you. So before I show you this point, I want to encourage you to su- supplement our study of the Olivet Discourse. If, if, again, I know you all have your own reading plans and different things you, you are going through. But if I can challenge you to take on one more thing on top of, of your, of your uh, uh, plans to be in the Word. If you could be reading through Ezekiel uh, over the next couple months as we're going through the Olivet Discourse. I, I promise you it will be of, um, of help to you and of encouragement to you. As we go through Matthew 24 and 25. And one of the reasons why is that Jesus, I mean, we've already seen Jesus referred to as the Son of Man. He refers to himself multiple times in Matthew as the Son of Man. But we run into it a few times throughout the Olivet Discourse as well. Uh, in reference to his coming in judgment and his conquering the enemy, his enemies. And so the term Son of Man, the title... I just want to, just to give you, see why it's relevant. The Son of Man is used 13 times throughout the Old Testament as a way of emphasizing man's humility and our humble estate in relationship or in comparison to God and His divine nature. So calling Him the Son of Man in in this sense in the Old Testament is to emphasize His humanity. So we have, for example, Psalm 8 Chapter 4, you, you'll, you'll know that you'll be familiar with this. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. See, he's comparing us to God. And what is man that you're mindful of him? And then poetically, the son of man uh, that you care for him. It's, it's making that emphasis of the humanity. And so 13 times it's used in that way. Um, of course, we have uh, the well-known apocalyptic use in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And so that's, that's a treasure that we're going to save for later that we're going to go through. So there's 13 times, one time in Daniel. And then we have the only other time in the Old Testament. The only other time uh, we have it being used is in what book? Can you guess? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Used as a reference to the prophet Ezekiel. And take, maybe the kids can participate. How many times do you think Ezekiel is referred to as the Son of Man? We see it 13 times, 14. Everywhere else in the Old Testament. How many times is Son of Man referred to, do you think, in Ezekiel? 
What's some guesses? 14, 14 times. That would make my point. But, I, but my number I have makes an even better point. Any other guesses? 16. 16. 20. You guys are all horrible at your knowledge of Ezekiel. 93 times. 93 times he's referred to. So do you see why I'm saying, even if we can't put our finger on why does it matter, there is a connection going on here. And it, it is important for us. We might want to know what this book has to say. This prophet who is referred to 93 times as the Son of Man, and then all of a sudden Christ enters the scene, calling himself the Son of Man. Now, generally speaking, we could, I could say this. How, how might we summarize Ezekiel? I put Rhoda on the spot last, last week because she's reading the same plan as me. If you could summarize Ezekiel in one word, what would you say? Son of man, what, what word could we put with it? Judgment. 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 Now, and then, of course, with judgment, there's always the other side, as we get to the end of Ezekiel, um, is deliverance. Judgment and deliverance often go hand in hand, but judgment is just, it's the theme of that book. He's constantly telling Ezekiel, son of man, go tell Israel and, and surrounding nations as well. It's not just Israel. Okay, so all that, that's bringing us back now to the statement of their house or their temple being desolate. Matthew 24, verse 1. We're gonna get, I'm going to get to Ezekiel. So stay in Ezekiel 11. But Matthew 24 says that Jesus left the temple and was going away. And so we look at Ezekiel... In the context of the new covenant promise, God is gathering exiled Israel. And in verse 19, Ezekiel 11, verse 19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. So again, that's why I say new covenant. In, uh, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? That he would come and that, that John, he baptized with water, but Jesus would come and baptize with the spirit and with fire. Well, what is fire? judgment and he says Ezekiel 11 verse 19 I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God but as for the heart those uh, whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations I will bring their deeds upon their own heads. We've seen that in Matthew 23. The blood of the prophets coming on their own heads, declares the Lord God. But this, is, this is the cool part. Right? Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Okay. Now tell me, in our current scene in Matthew 24, with Jesus' disciples coming to him, pointing out the buildings of the temple, what do you, where, what do you think? Where is God's glory being manifest in that scene? The disciples come to him. Jesus. 
Jesus, remember what does John say? John says, and the word became flesh, the word dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Uh, Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So, other, so where Jesus is, God's glory is. Okay? So Matthew 24.1 says that the incarnate glory of God, he does what? He leaves the temple. And he, where does he go? Verse, if we look further in verse 3, it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives. And from there, Jesus answers their questions surrounding the coming of judgment. Can anyone here guess where the Mount of Olives stood in relationship to Jerusalem? To the east of the city, uh, as Ezekiel says in chapter 11, verse 23. And ironically, while the radiance of the glory of God is departing the temple... Standing upon the mountain that is on the east of the city, where does the disciples' attention turn to? His disciples, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They're looking back at the temple. They are in awe of the glory of the magnificent structure of the building itself. Rather than being taken captivated by the temple, uh, what what it was intended to represent and to point us to. Which was, I mean, I said Jesus, but ultimately in the Old Testament, it was always to represent God's presence. His dwelling place among his people. Mark's account, again, just to affirm this, Mark's account Words it, he says, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Mark 13, 1. Now, to be fair, here is just a sampling of some of the eyewitness testimony of the Jewish, Jewish historian Josephus to the temple's beauty and size. I mean, we can read of the dimensions in the temple, and Ezekiel right, has that, the spiritual temple being uh, spoken of. But when, you, when you're hearing about cubits being this long and that long, it's, I, I'm not sitting there reading this thinking, wow, what a beautiful. But I, so I want to read this, this account given here of what the, the contemporary perspective was, what, they, what was going on in their minds as they viewed the temple. He says, now the temple was built of stones that were white and strong and each of their length was 25 cubits, which is about 37 feet. So each stone, about 37 feet. Their height was 8 feet, uh, sorry, 8 cubits, which is 12 feet. And their breadth was about 18 feet. So you have 37 long, 12 feet high, and then a breadth of 18 feet for each stone. And now the outward face of the temple, he says... In its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor. And made those uh, who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away. Just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming to it at a distance like a mountain covered with snow 
For as the parts of it that were not gilt with gold were exceedingly white. Now that's Josephus, the first century uh, Jewish philosopher Philo. He described the temple as being beautiful beyond all possible description. And he spoke, it, spoke of it as our most beautiful and renowned temple, which is respected by all the East and by all the West and regarded like the sun which shines everywhere. And Roman historian Tacitus, he notes the Jewish temple, he says, was famous beyond all other works of men and was a temple of immense wealth. And later rabbis would proudly declare that he who has not seen the temple in its full splendor has never seen a beautiful building. So that's, that's their wit, first century witness. Even today, a portion of the massive foundation uh, platform on which the temple stood still exists. Um, it's the portion known today as the Wailing Wall, right? Um, 1,600 feet long and 100 feet high. And again, the reason why it was left is because it was technically, it was not just part of the temple, it was part of the city gate as well. Um, and so, so it was left there for that purpose. Um, one of its stones there on that wailing wall is estimated to be between, uh, sorry, most are between four and eight tons. One of the stones is 40 feet long and weighs an estimated 570 tons. And so my aim in sharing these details is hopefully to stop your mouths before you point the finger at the disciples and give them a hard time for being a little distracted and perhaps even um, disturbed by what they thought Jesus meant when he said to the scribes and Pharisees that the temple was going to be left desolate. And again, also remember, these are country boys. And I mean, enter the city and look at all the tall buildings and have somebody say, you see all these things? They're going to be wiped out. You're going to be a little like, take, you're going to, that's going to catch your attention. So after pointing out the buildings of the temple, verse 2 says, But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Again, there's that word of divine assurance and clarity I looked at last week. Truly I say to you. And then he essentially says the same thing twice using different words to emphasize what he's saying, to emphasize the devastation. He says, there will not be left here one stone upon another, followed by, which itself would be sufficient, but he, he adds on to that, that will not be thrown down. It's a double negative. Now, it's incredibly important in light of the mindset of the people in confidence and security that the visible, just the visible presence and prominence of the temple that it gave to the average Jew at that time. And their confidence, therefore, that God could never, he would never allow such a, such a beautiful, magnificent thing just be you know, brought to nothing. The key to properly understanding the disciples' question that follows in verse 3, and therefore understanding the whole discourse 
is to understand how closely knit together the temple's existence was uh, in the existence uh, to the existence of the Jewish people and even to the world as they knew it. Right? As long as the temple, this, this glorious building was here, they knew they were here. It was so tied together. Uh, just 20 years before its destruction. Note the, un- the underlying assumption made by Fi- uh, Philo here. When he's describing, he's describing the temple's enduring income. He's talking about in- the income that it had. But know what, he, how, what he's assuming in it. He says that the temple has for its revenues not only portions of the land, but also other possessions of much greater extent and importance, which will never be destroyed or diminished. He says, for as long as the race of mankind shall last, the revenues likewise of the temple will always be preserved, being equivalent in their duration with the universal world. You see the, just the assumption that is made here with the, the confidence it gave them in their endurance, not just of the Jews, but of mankind. As long as this, this is standing, so will the world continue to stand. The destruction of the temple went hand in hand with the end of the world as they knew it. And we, by the way, we use that language today, don't we? Of how your world can be turned upside down by things that are truly devastating, but of course not necessarily globally so. Maybe in my lifetime, I might think 9-11. COVID! Now, yeah, sorry, I'm not, I, I know the story of Pearl Harbor, it's just not as close to my heart as my experience but that was in their so that was their view their connection to um, the temple with the life of the people Um, previously of course in the period of the first temple we saw that Israel had they had that same assumption as Jeremiah warned them in Jeremiah 7 4 I'll just read this for you Jeremiah 7 God says, do not trust in these deceptive words, the people who say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 8, God says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. They were saying, as long as the temple's here, we're safe. God says, don't trust in those deceptive words. He says, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods and then come and stand before me in this house? Which is called by my name. And you're going to say we're delivered. You're going to go and worship all these other gods. But because you have this magnificent house of worship, you're going to say we're safe. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Does that sound familiar? Jesus quoted that when he came to cleanse the temple. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And so just as took place with the first temple, here also, within one generation of Jesus' prophecy, 
the magnificent second temple was utterly destroyed by the Roman army, just as Jesus said it would. He said, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, listen to to Josephus' account of the temple's destruction in 70 AD. He says, now as soon as the army has no more people to slay, had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none of the objects of their fury, for they would have not spared any had there remained any other work to be done, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest eminency, and so much of the wall as enclosed the city on the west side. So that's, that's his reason why he left part of that wall. So he says, this wall was spared in order to afford a camp for such as were to lie in garrison, as were the towers also spared, in order to demonstrate to posterity, to all that would come after, what kind of city it was and how how, how well fortified which the Roman valor had subdued it. So they wanted to utterly destroy the city, but they wanted some memorials they wanted to leave some buildings so that people could see how powerful Rome was, like how great of a city this once was, that Rome now just desolated. That was their idea of leaving uh, some un- undone. But he says, for the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came after believe it had ever been inhabited. That, that takes a lot. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever wa- watched old buildings get demolished. It takes a lot of work to make it so that it, you can't even tell that somebody had once dwelt there. Um, and this is what Josephus is saying. He says, this was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those who were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind. And just to, just to assure you, of, again, this testimony that Josephus is giving, he was not a Christian describing the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. But Josephus was at one point a general in the, Jew, uh, the Jewish military who eventually defected to Rome. And, and so I just want just to, uh, there's a little summary I have here where Josephus, he initially fought against the Roman Empire during the first Jewish-Roman War as a general of the forces. And he also was part of the priestly, he had a priestly um, heritage. And then he surrenders in 67 AD, basically seeing the writing on the wall, to Vespasian, or Vespasian, after the six-week siege of Yodfat. And so Josephus, he claimed... In, the, in that surrendering of the Jewish, his Jewish milit- army to, uh, to Vespasian, he claimed that the Jewish messianic prophecies that initiated the first war made reference to Vespasian becoming the Roman, Empire, uh, Roman emperor. And, and, and by the way, remember, we're going to get there later, but you have Jesus' warning of false Christs rising up and leading uh, many astray. But he says that in response, so, so Josephus makes this prophecy saying that 
Vespasian, he's going to become the emperor. Vespasian likes that prophecy. He's, uh, he likes the sound of him becoming the emperor. And so he, he keeps him as a slave, and uh, as, uh, presumably as an interpreter. And after Vespasian became the emperor in 69 AD, he gives Josephus his freedom. Uh, and jo- Josephus basically becomes a friend. He becomes a Roman citizen, uh, and he becomes an advisor to Vespasian, uh, to his son, Titus. Serving as his translator when Titus led the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which led to the destruction. So, why I explain that is because we don't, um, we couldn't ask for a more reliable testimony from the pen of a contemporary Jew and now faithful servant of Caesar, unwittingly detailing the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. So just totally third, you know, um, external witness to this event. And it is upon hearing Jesus' detail of this coming devastation that we, we come to verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And as I said, it is crucial to see how this is the launching pad from which Jesus jumps into his prophetic discourse. But in order to kind of keep you on the edge of your seat, we're going to have to wait until next week to get into that and to seal that up for you. Because what I want, I just want to make sure before we close, regardless of whether any new insight is brought forward to us. I think it is important with these kind of messages that you know, they tend to be a little more dense in information and, and, and in knowledge. It's important that we try to cap this off by connecting its significance to us today, right? For, and for us tomorrow, to help us carry out the mission that King Jesus has entrusted to us, uh, regardless of how simple that point is, regardless of how simple that application is. And so I just want to bring this down to us now for, for today, for tomorrow, for this week. I believe our application can be found in answering the question, what was the purpose of God's prophetic warnings of judgment? What was the purpose of God's prophetic warnings of judgment? Now, one element has always been that people would fear God and repent. Right, And that, that, that is certainly an element here. But another element closely associated with growing in the fear of the Lord and that leads to repentance, as I sift through the ju- judgment of narrative, the narratives of Scripture, is the vindication and manifestation of God's sovereign and holy power. Of the reliability of His word. The difference in the people's response from when God says, you know, I am coming in such and such manner in this place to judge you. Right? The difference in the response you get when, that, when you, he gives that kind of message, I'm coming, I'm going to judge you. Compared to the response that is provoked by the reality of when that dreadful judgment falls upon a people. 
just as he said it would. See how you, 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 there's a difference in response you're going to probably get. And, and the, the example is, is coming from Ezekiel, for, from, um, as I've been in Ezekiel quite a bit. Ezekiel 33, 28. God says, I will make the land a desolation and a waste. Uh, this is speaking of the first judgment. Uh, the, before the Babylon, well, during and completing the Babylonian exile. I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might sh- uh, shall come to an end, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have made the land a desolation and a waste, because of all their abominations that they have committed. They, they knew, had knowledge, they knew he was the Lord before. God, and God warned them that he was the Lord. And he said, because I'm the Lord, this is going to happen. But he's saying, when I do this, then they will know that I am the Lord. And then Ezekiel 6.3. In Ezekiel 6.3, he says, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and will destroy your high places. And by the way, when he says, behold, I, even I, will bring a sword, what's he emphasizing there? He's not saying, behold, I, he's not saying, he's not making the point that God himself would direct, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to bring a, an actual sword and I'm going to come and manifest my presence, you know, directly. But who bears God's sword in judgment on the earth, according to Romans 13? The governing authorities. Verse 4, Romans 13, 4. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And other scriptures in history testify to that. Jeremiah 27, 6 literally says that Nebuchadnezzar, God says, he is my servant. And if, if any of you nations don't bow to him... You're going to be cut off. And so the reason for the first person emphasis, when he says, behold, I, even I will bring a a sword, is so that the Israelites would not make the mistake of dismissing their destruction at the hands of the Babylonian armies as being the work of just their enemies alone. Like, of course, of course, the Babylonians would do that. They're our enemies. They hate us. And miss that, no, this was actually God. That did this. You see what? So he's saying, behold, I, even I, don't miss that when the Babylonian army comes and just utterly destroys you, that this isn't the Babylonians alone that is at work here, but this is my very own hand coming down upon you. And he says in Ezekiel 6, 4, he continues, he says, Your altars shall become desolate, your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain before your idols. Verse 7, and the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, I could just read you verse after verse in Ezekiel. Um, my search showed 30 times in Ezekiel. He says that you, so that, I'm going to do this so that you may know that I am the Lord. And so they refer. Even though they refuse to believe the pronouncements of future judgment, what he's saying is there will be no denying its fulfillment when it comes. 
So again, so what? I'm bringing it here to answer that question. So what? What does this matter to, to you today? As I mentioned last week, that when we're, de- when we're dealing with the fulfillment of prophecy, the application really is going to be the same for us today. Um, pretty much going, uh, uh, any kind of, where it's this theme, it's going to be the same on repeat here as we go through the Olivet Discourse. But it's an important application, an important thing to be reminded of. And I pray that it would not fall on deaf ears today. The same God who carried out the destruction of Jerusalem within a generation of Jesus' prophecy is the same God who said he is coming to judge all the nations on a day and hour when no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, do you think we can... Jesus is saying, I don't know that day. But he didn't know the first, he knew the day that was coming for the Jews. And he was absolutely right. Do you think we can trust his word for what he's telling us about this coming day? The prophetic word of Christ fell on many deaf ears in his day. But do not confuse that with thinking that his word had returned void. Rather, it accomplished exactly what God purposed. Salvation and life for all who heard and believed and turned from their evil ways and judgment and destruction for all who refused to hear and humble themselves for the mighty God. May today be a day among us where the prophetic word of Christ brings salvation and life to any of you here among us who remains dead in sin and unbelief. That you have heard the voice, maybe today, of the seeking shepherd calling your name to leave your doubts, to leave your guilt and the terror of judgment at the foot of the cross. So may you hear that voice. May you trust in it, because it is a reliable voice in his word given you to, to you today. And may you be raised to new life in Christ who rose, from the, who rose on the grave on the third day as he said he would. So we can trust in him in that as well. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word that it, as Paul said to Timothy, it makes us wise for salvation. Your word makes sense of the world and all that we live in it, live in. God, your word, we thank you for your prophetic word. That it is a word that is supernatural and um, that cannot, is not merely tested by man's own scientific research alone. Though it passed, it, 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 of course, it passed those tests as well. But it is a word that uh, oftentimes in Isaiah, where you challenge the, the false gods of the world, you say, and you basically say, predict, you know, tell me you who say that you know all these things. Predict when this will happen. Predict when that will happen. And of course they can. But God, you constantly throughout history have, have verified and given uh, just abundant testimony to the reliability and certainty of your word. And so we thank you for the immense privilege and blessing it is to be able to 
to have it here among us today and to learn from it and to hear it taught, Lord, we pray. But even in that, God, we, we, we just consider the, the people in Jesus' day who had the word of God incarnate proclaiming the word to them. And we praise you that there were many who it says did hear and did repent and did believe, but there were many who didn't. And so, God, today we pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us and that the words that have been spoken of, of judgment and of deliverance that is found in Christ, that the unbelieving heart today would hear and respond in faith. And God, that you would also just awaken us to the reality and to the concern that there is a judgment to come. And that that ought to have. There's, there's been judgments in the past and there's a judgment to come. And, and that that ought to quicken us today. Um, awaken us today in our zeal and our love and our passion for serving you and your kingdom. And so God, I pray that your word would have its full and attendant effect. And I can pray that with faith because I know it will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.